0: Good morning and good afternoon and welcome to Kobo Banker Commercial Chatter, what we call CBC Chatter. Today we have a super interesting topic talking about the intersection of cannabis and the commercial real estate market just in preparing for this uh, presentation today i learned a lot of the nuance that there is in the business both on the real estate side and the cannabis side and we're going to have a great group of panelists to get into some further detail and understanding for all of our audience today we're on a live audience we encourage you to participate by typing your questions into the chat box Uh, we'll get to questions later in the conversation uh, we also, if you're uh, on social media and you'd like to um, to take a screenshot or share something out or you hear a comment that you think is really meaningful, you can use the hashtag CBC Chatter. Um, but let's make this an interactive conversation to the extent we can on a broadcast. I want to welcome everybody today, in particular the journalists that are joining us. Uh, both business journalists and others that specialize in the industry. And uh, we're going to get into introducing our panelists, and I will let them talk a little bit further about themselves. So first of all, we have Dustin Robinson, who is the founder of Mr. Cannabis Law. We have Rick Lockie, a commercial real estate professional with Cobalt Banker Commercial, who represents Uh, a cannabis uh, dispensary in Florida, and Jackie Bryant. Jackie is a journalist who uh, has a background in real estate and the cannabis space. And I'm gonna let each of these individuals tell you a little bit more about themselves. Let's have a
1: great discussion. I look forward to questions in the end. So Dustin, over to you. Hi, then thank you for having me. My name is Dustin Robinson. I'm a licensed attorney, CPA, and real estate agent. I'm the founding partner of Mr. Cannabis Law, which is a full service law firm exclusively focused on the cannabis and psychedelic space. I also co-founded a nonprofit called Mr. Psychedelic Law that is focused on legal reform around psychedelics. And I'm also the managing principal of a venture capital fund called Eater Investments that's deploying capital, with within the psychedelic biotech space. Great, thank
0: you.
2: Thank you, Dustin. And Rick? Uh, My name's Rick Lockheed. I was an architect for about 15 years, moved into brokerage uh, about five years ago, and have had the ability to work with a handful of different um, medical marijuana dispensaries throughout Florida here. All right, great. Thank you. And Jackie, our moderator today.
3: Hi, my name is Jackie Bryant. I'm a San Diego based cannabis journalist writing for the San Diego Union Tribune, Voice of San Diego, Forbes, Weed Week, Weed Maps, and many other publications. Uh, prior to my journalism career, I worked in New York for Cohen and Steers Capital Management, which is a, a REIT firm. Um, thanks.
0: All right, great. Well, as you can see, we have a great group of panelists. And I'll tell you this as we were preparing for this call, there was a lot that I did, I learned that I didn't know about the space. So before we get into some detailed discussion about cannabis and commercial real estate and how to work with users and growers and all that kind of stuff, I think we have to level set and at least start with what are the terms, what do you call which kind of product and what does that mean for real estate? So there's hemp and cannabis and marijuana THC, all these kind of terms that are thrown around. So I'm going to defer it to Jackie to uh, identify what terms we want to know, and then our panelists will talk a little bit more just so we get off to a good start.
3: Yeah, I think the two big things to know are that um, within the cannabis umbrella, there's marijuana and there's hemp and there are two legally separate entities, one being federally legal, one not. So, um, Dustin, could you give us a little bit uh, more color on the legal uh, differences there and how that might play out in the commercial real estate industry?
1: yeah there's a lot of confusion around the world can't word cannabis hemp cbd thc they all get kicked around in different Mm -hmm. ways and even within the cannabis industry um they kind of get misused at, at different times so like you mentioned cannabis is the plant species so both marijuana and hemp are types of cannabis. Uh, The only distinction, it's not a scientific distinction, it's just a legal distinction. Pursuant to the 2018 Farm Bill, um, hemp is defined as having 0.3% Delta-9-THC or less, um, and marijuana is anything above 0.3% Delta-9-THC. So Delta-9-THC is the compound within the cannabis plant that gets you high. So the logic there is that if it has less than 0.3% Delta-9-THC, It's not going to get you high. Therefore, it's called hemp and it's federally legal, Um, whereas marijuana has more than 0.3% Delta 9 THC and it is federally illegal. So because marijuana is federally illegal and hemp is federally illegal, legal, um, it's very important that you understand kind of the distinction. and, And there's totally different business considerations, different legal considerations. And from a real estate perspective, extremely important, you know, the difference. And just one more point, I'll make that within the cannabis plants, there's hundreds of cannabinoids. And those cannabinoids are things like CBD, THC, delta 9, THC, delta 8, THC. And really, when people are referring to CBD, it could come from the marijuana plant, which is federally illegal, or the hemp plant, which is federally legal. So just saying that you have a CBD product, it doesn't say in and of itself, whether it's actually legal. It's all about the source, where that cannabinoid is coming from. Once again, if it's coming from the hemp plant, federally legal, if it's coming from the marijuana plant, federally illegal. So I'll kind of pause there. We could talk a long time about kind of the history and everything, but that kind of hopefully levels the playing field with the the language.
3: Yeah. Thank you for, you know, making those distinctions. It's really important. Um, You know, cannabis is legal for adult use and and depending on how you define it, uh, 19 or 20 states or jurisdictions now with states being added seemingly every week as of late. Um, But access to banking is severely handicapped, especially on the federal level and still remains federally illegal. So once an $80 billion strictly illegal industry, the legalization of medical and recreational marijuana in some states shifted nearly $14 billion into illegal cannabis market. Market, according to data from 2019, that shift is exponential. The global legal cannabis market is expected to hit between 57 and 73 billion dollars by 2027, according to reports published by Arcview and Grandview Research. Um, So I'd like to get a little bit into leasing pitfalls, challenges, um, you know, supply and demand, what the current market looks like. So, Rick, could you tell us a little bit, you know, what's going on in in the cannabis space in commercial real estate today? I know that's kind of a loaded question, as anything with cannabis is, but give us the overview.
2: No, definitely. Um, Throughout the last two and a half years, uh, I've had the (laughs) luck, I guess you could say, to negotiate over one hundred and Forty-seven hundred and fifty leases, um, of which only twenty-seven of those actually turned into leases. And uh, you know there are four major issues that that come up. Your one, the site has to work. Um, You know, just for your retail standpoint, the visibility, the traffic, the parking, um, then your local land development codes in each jurisdiction in every state and every municipality seems to be different. So you got to understand if it's allowed on what corner and what zoning and then, uh, you know. Once you get past that, is the landlord willing? Do they have any moral issues with the product? Um, a lot of landlords in the beginning, about two years ago, thought of these more like the, the old pill mills in the past, but uh, they're coming around now. So mostly a lot of landlords are more willing. And then, uh, you know, the. At, after all that you also have to make sure that the product the property is either debt free or the lender that has debt on the property is willing to uh to allow cannabis as a use um and there are some other lease provisions that uh i could talk about but dustin's probably better at that
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one thing to note here is that earlier in the cannabis industry, some of these multi-state operators were raising tremendous amounts of cash. And so they were looking to own the properties early on. And what happened is valuations decreased, it became harder to get cash. So a lot of those MSOs started doing sale leasebacks and really their real estate strategy started to shift towards doing more leases. So obviously, leases are becoming a very important part of the industry. There's a lot of different provisions you want to have in there and it's really very specific to each state Um, so definitely want to work with with an attorney and a realtor that's familiar with cannabis but some of the the general provisions that you, you pretty much always want to have in there one of them is you know the compliance with law provision generally you're going to have that in there that says that the tenant needs to comply with federal state and local law obviously if they're a marijuana tenant they're not actually complying with federal law. So you're going to want to make sure that that provision is changed to basically state that marijuana is allowed even though it is illegal pursuant to the Controlled Substances Act. Um, You're also going to want to have an acknowledgement by the landlord that he explicitly is acknowledging that he knows that the property will be used for marijuana, which once again is illegal pursuant to the Controlled Substances Act. You're going to want to have. a cooperation by landlord provision. That's always a very important provision to have in there. Um, All these states have different Uh, requirements as far as build-outs go, as far as getting sign-offs by the landlord, um, as far as making any modifications to the property. And you really want to make sure that as a tenant that the landlord is on board to cooperate with you in in a diligent manner uh, as you go through some of those changes. So whether it's, you know, something you need him to sign off for that needs to be submitted to the state, or maybe something needs to change with your construction, maybe you Um, didn't build out your restricted area properly, so you need to make that change. You want to make sure that the landlord is going to cooperate with that. And then, one other provision that I'll throw out there, and this is becoming very relevant in Florida right now because we just uh, had a Florida Supreme Court case that is going to hopefully allow licensing to, to come back. What's happening is a lot of people are looking to apply for licenses and as part of part of that application process, they're going to need to find real estate. Um, but of course they don't want to operate that real estate unless they actually win a license. So you know negotiating those types of leases, you're gonna want to have in there some sort of contingency provision that essentially states that, you know, this lease is contingent upon us winning a license and to the extent we do do not actually get a license. The lease is automatically terminated. Some landlords will require you to pay some fee during those, those months. Um, and that became a big issue out in Illinois. Um, Illinois opened up their dispensary licenses in January, 2020. And because of all the different court cases, the state's been sued. They have not announced the winners of those applications and therefore there's some people that entered into lease agreements and they're stuck basically paying a monthly lease amount until they find out if they won. So, you know, when you're when you're getting a piece of real estate the lesson to, to understand is when you're getting a piece of real estate pre-license, there's definitely some very specific provisions you need to have in there to account for for various different contingencies. And I will say on that note, um, something that that
2: if you're representing a landlord and you have a a company contact you, as I'm sure we all have, at least in Florida, um, you need to ask directly if they have their license currently or if they're working for it, because that's representing a tenant that was licensed. That was our biggest issue two and a half years ago is we were also competing with a lot of people that were asking to lock up the property for six to nine months, um, which upset some landlords, upset some property owners. So um, you just have to make sure you're clear (laughs) up front on who you're dealing with and, and what they're looking to use the property for.
1: And on that note, I'll say, if you obviously, there's different considerations if you're representing the tenant versus the landlord. If you're representing the landlord, you're probably going to want to have in there some sort of indemnification provision per federal law. Still, it's actually illegal for the landlord to lease property to a a marijuana business. So to the extent that you have that type of negotiating leverage as the landlord, um, you're going to want to have certain indemnification uh, provisions in there in the case that the federal government does actually enforce some of those laws so really there's there's various things you're going to want on and, and it really depends on whether you're, you're representing the landlord or the tenant in that situation
3: if you're representing tenants how easy is it to find a landlord who is understanding and sympathetic to these provisions and do you have any examples that you could share any any stories from out in the wild that might be interesting
2: um, I <laughs> Uh, yeah, we have definitely have some stories. Um, up front, there are a lot of people that wouldn't even talk to us. I mean, they you send them emails, you send them texts, you call them, and they just won't respond because they don't want to deal with uh, either the issues or the moral problems they have with it. But, uh, you know, as time's gone by and as a lot of these dispensaries have opened there I think a lot of landlords are starting to see that they they aren't the pill mills of the past they there isn't a bad contingent of people hanging around it's not they're not head shops they're very nice properties and if anything they these cannabis companies put a, a a ton of money into these properties and make them gorgeous. Kind of like, you know, a jewelry store, as you've seen um, with most of them out there. So I think landlords are really starting to see that it's worth having them in their property. Um, but you still get, especially in Northern Florida, you still get a lot of, you uh, um, in kind of that edge of the Bible belt that are completely against <laughs> the use of marijuana on their property. So,
1: yeah. And, and I think, you know, there's also the marijuana companies because of all these complications, they're usually willing to play pay pretty high cap rates on these, on these leases. Right. So, you know, the typical marijuana lease will probably be, you know, the tenant will be paying more money than a normal tenant. So some landlords, they like that right there they should be able if they're willing to take on that risk and they understand what they're getting into um, they like the opportunity to charge a little bit more on the lease to kind of reflect that risk. And I'll just add, in addition to being, you know, beautiful, you know, locations, a lot of them, um, they're also highly, highly secure. Probably even more secure than banks because of these these statutory regulations. Um, they really have to be very highly secure. So there's there's kind of a misconception that property values go down and there's also it brings theft and you're going to have hoodlums hanging around in the area. It's not at all like that. Um, the reality is it's it's, it's not like that I, I could speak to florida obviously different states there's different situ- situations and, and i'm sure and you know there's some outliers out there where, where it could be it could be an issue but for the most part you know you're going to drive by these locations And you're probably not even gonna gonna notice that there's a cannabis shop that you're driving right by. I I hear people all the time, they're like, marijuana's legal in Florida? I'm like, yeah, there's hundreds of dispensaries, but you don't even realize it. You go about your day every day and you don't even realize it. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there as far as like valuations and and theft. And I think we're slowly knocking down those stigmas. And I think more landlords are becoming more open to lease to marijuana tenants. And then it's funny,
3: Right. We're talking about different commercial space. We're talking about growing and, and you know, vertically integrated companies. And, and can you talk a little bit about these different spaces and, and different company structures and how that might affect, um, you know, what kind of spaces are in demand and being leased right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, just like Rick mentioned, you know, one of the one of the things he listed that you want to make sure of is that the property is properly zoned. So if you're going to be dispensing, you need to make sure it's zoned as retail. If you're going to be growing, it should be zoned as agriculture or some some, some places actually allow it to be heavy industrial use as well. Um, so, So the first thing is really figuring out, you know, whether it's zoned properly, forgetting that you're doing, you know, marijuana or cannabis or anything, you need to be zoned properly. Um, But then, you know, a lot lot of it is also understanding where you need to go from there. So there's different considerations and, and sometimes these landlords, depending on the state will want ownership in the actual company as opposed to doing a lease. Um, in Florida, because of the statute, it becomes a little bit more challenging. So, you know, there's different ways to structure all of these these different deals. And, and you know, there's REITs that get set up, there's investment funds that will finance real estate. Um, so yeah, very different considerations depending on where you fall within that supply chain.
2: Yeah, and as far as locations, Gal, it's... Uh... <laughs> It, you really have to get in touch with your local planning and zoning department and understand the land development codes extremely well, because especially when it's new to a specific area, um, the planners don't know much about it. So understanding and helping your client or your landlord understand those um you know, the legal issues with planning and zoning will, you know, give you a lot of benefit towards them. And uh, I will say, just to <laughs> kind of echo what Dustin said about um, cap rates being a little higher, uh, representing a tenant, um, those are some funny conversations when, you know, if a property is leasing 30 bucks a square foot, but they ask for 70, um, understand that most of these medical marijuana tenants, um, they will pay a little bit higher, or they will pay market, but the days of getting uh, crazy deals I think are gone. They've, uh, they've realized that there are more landlords out there that are willing to do it, and will will walk <laughs> to the, ne- the guy next door.
3: And and what's it like working with tenants who don't have full access to banking? Um, How does that change what you do and how you work with both landlords and tenants?
2: I will say the tenants They don't seem to be short on cash, so that's not really an issue. Um, they do have some, you know, local banks that they have been able to use, and Dustin can probably speak a little bit more to that. But the biggest issue is working with the landlords and their banks or their lenders for the property to see if. Uh, marijuana as a possibility in their property because some of the big banks will allow but only a percentage of the property so each is different at this moment so again it's just digging into each individual situation
1: yeah i mean the the landlord banks is is always an issue that sometimes gets overseen uh, or overlooked i mean you know it's still illegal for uh, a, a federally insured bank to accept marijuana money, right? So if a landlord is being paid by a tenant, and the tenant is operating a federally illegal business, and that bank will generally take issue with it. So there are some banks that will bank these marijuana companies. You know, we have a um, few banks in in Florida, like First Federal and Lafayette. Um, you know, there's there's a couple different banks. So usually banking is is somewhat available, um, but because of it being federally illegal, just makes it terribly complicated. And there are some things going on at a federal level, like the Safe Banking Act that will hopefully make it a little bit easier it's past the house they're still waiting on the Senate um, but essentially what the Safe Banking Act does is it protects banks and allows them to, to to bank these marijuana companies as long as they're operating legally pursuant to state law. So there are some things that I think will be coming down the pipeline that'll make banking a little bit easier but then you know obviously the, the other option is is private. Lenders, um, if you're looking for financing, um, you know there's there's the private side. There's also venture capital funds that are specifically set up to find you know invest in some of these companies. And then you have you know certain you know REITs, real estate investment trusts. Some some people are setting up real estate specific funds as well. To finance some of this, um, so, so some, to finance some of the real estate. So, you know, there's a lot of different options out there, and, and banking and financing is, is always a big challenge, but there, there are options, and, and you do have the ability to raise capital as well as to have bank accounts open.
3: And regarding higher cap rates and tenants, you know, paying a premium if they want to operate, you know, in the marijuana space, um, what would it take for that to come back to normal and level out with the rest of the commercial real estate market?
1: I, I would just say it's, 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 it's always it's a supply and demand thing, right? So if there's more landlords willing to, to, to lease to tenants, um, and if the municipalities, you know, in, in a lot of these states, they defer to the municipalities on how they want to regulate um, marijuana dispensaries. So for example, in, in Florida, um, the municipalities could either ban dispensaries or treat them the same as pharmacies. And a lot of cities have banned them, right? So so there's a low supply of locations because of that municipality ban. And then in the municipalities that do allow them, a lot of the landlords may not be cool with, you know, leasing. So, you know, that makes their there's a tight supply, which means they could charge more. Um, But as more municipalities uh, remove these bans and as more municipalities allow additional areas that are zoned to to allow marijuana dispensaries and cultivation locations and and so on and so forth, you know, the supply will go up, the stigma will go down, which means more landlords will be willing and, and hopefully we'll start to see those lease rates go down. I also just, one more thing, I'll just, you know, repeat the Safe Banking Act. If that opens up um, and it actually passes at a federal level, that will also make that supply of properties more available. Because if banking's available, more people will be able to be willing to lease. um, And therefore that supply goes up, which means that the the cap rate should go down. No, 100%.
2: Right now, your Class A, most of your Class a retail is owned by these large retail um, REITs and none of them can lease to medical marijuana or marijuana in general because of the the banking issues. Um, Some may have some other issues, but most of it's just the lending. So once lending frees up, you'll have all that prime retail real estate available to you, so I think that's the big hurdle.
3: Great. And regarding, you know, general liability and how it plays into this, it's a partially legal industry dealing with a product that has street value and it's a cash-heavy business. So, um, when thinking about leases and thinking about these properties, um, how can how are assets protected and how does that play into leasing as well? How, how do we see that play out and what types of properties?
1: Um, I, I guess I'll start. Um, yeah, I mean, you know. The, uh, I think, you know, the, the key is really, I think, working with an insurance broker that's familiar with the space. Um, like here in Florida, we work with a lot. We do a lot of stuff with S2 Insure, uh, which is the, the Ron and associates group. And they're basically specifically tailored for the cannabis industry. So they're very familiar with the, the property liability exposure, the product liability exposure. Um, d insurance actually is, is becoming more and more important in the space. You're seeing more and investors suing directors and officers um, relating to this. So now investors what they're demanding is that there is DNO insurance to, to kind of cover that type of liability and, and DNO insurance is not easy to get within the marijuana space. So I think the key is really to to work with an insurance broker that is terribly familiar with the risks around this space that could really work with you and kind of tailor a plan for for obtaining the correct insurance no and i i I completely agree
2: and i think a lot of the um tenants specifically will have language in their leases that that call out exactly what type of insurance that they need the landlords to have and the type of insurance that they will provide at the same time, you know, when it comes to increased security and everything, most landlords, um, liability wise, regardless if there's multiple tenants in the shopping center, any increased security specific to that tenant will typically be on the medical marijuana company. That way that, you know, the other tenants aren't being you know, penalized for, having medical marijuana in their you know in their shopping center so and then also speaking from experience um there's always the you know the vultures and the um slip and fall attorneys out there that If you slip and fall in front of a medical marijuana dispensary, they think, oh, they got a ton of cash. They'll be able to pay. So I'm hearing more and more of that. Um, So also, on that note, when you're leasing a space, making sure that it it meets all the ADA and building code requirements, because legally, they will
1: be a prime target. Yeah. And I'll just add on on that note, you know, you got to know we we talked a little bit about the supply chain and I I don't know if we're moving towards talking about the edible stuff, but but when you talk about edibles here in in different states, you might actually have to have an additional license through another department. For example, in Florida, you know, edibles are food. Chapter 500 in the state of Florida regulates food. So yes, you need to be compliant with the Department of Health that oversees our medical marijuana program, but you also need to be licensed as a food establishment with our Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. So, you know, depending on where you fall within that supply, chain, um, you're going to want to make sure that you have the proper licenses required. And and part of chapter 500, and and pretty much every state has certain statutes relating to food beyond just marijuana, just general food. Um, You're generally going to have to have certain construction standards, uh, GMP facility, um, certain control standards, um, what your plan is for getting rid of waste. Um, So, you know, if you're operating an edible Company, there's there's kind of a whole different set of regulations you need to be aware. When I when I got into cannabis law, I had no idea I would also be a food law attorney. But because so many of my 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 both marijuana and hemp clients um, sell edibles, you know, I've kind of had to dive right into to food law as well, which is a whole different area of law that that edible companies need to be familiar with.
3: And it's something that we're going to have to re- everyone's going to have to really get into it, right? Um, according to recent data from the data company Headset, a demand for medical and recreational edibles, cannabis edibles, has increased by sixty percent across seven state markets, uh, from seven hundred and sixty-seven million to one point two three billion, and it, and it looks like that's continuing to be a preferred product as people don't want to inhale, and um, you know it's considered to be safer and also safer for medical use for people who can't combust, um, and it's also are just becoming a preferred entry-level product for people who are, you know, quote-unquote kind curious and want to try for the first time. Um, their dosing is precise now. It's not like the wild, wild west of days before when, you know, you saw a brownie on a table and you have no idea what's in it. Now you know exactly what you're getting, theoretically, so it's becoming kind of the product of choice. Is it easy to find kitchens for these spaces, and is it easy to convert them into a space that would be legal and leasable for a marijuana company? I can go to either.
2: Uh, yeah, I do know in Florida, um, as of right now and until we go into the recreational market, I don't see anything but centralized um, production of these edibles. So you'll have uh, you know, their labs and everything setting up kitchens putting these um, edibles together and then distributing them out to the dispensaries. Because to put an, an edible kitchen or kind of bar setup in a, in a retail location before it's recreational, I think you're going to have a limited market there. At least I haven't seen anybody move that
1: way, um, at least here in Florida. Dustin? Yeah, I mean, the way, the way you see a lot of these marijuana companies in Florida, since it's vertically integrated, um, a lot of them set up their processing and their distribution right where they cultivate. So, you know, they'll have a property where they cultivate. It'll then move into extraction and that'll turn it into oil. And then that oil... Is then goes to, you know, if they're doing tinctures, it goes to, you know, bottling for tinctures. If it's going to be put in an edible, you know, it goes to the kitchen and they're putting it in a gummy or, or whatever it is. And they kind of want that all within within one location. So, um, and to get to your question, it's not very hard to find the kitchens. I mean, you know, normal kitchens and, and the, you know, the, the food departments in the various states really aren't, that stringent on where they could be as long as they comply with normal food laws so if you find a normal kitchen that's you know operating as a bakery and you're kind of trying to convert it into uh, a cannabis edible kitchen Um, there really should not be too many hurdles there that should stop you from from doing so. Um, And obviously edibles are becoming increasingly popular. Um, Beyond that, you're also seeing, so I think kind of the untapped part of the supply chain that we really, it's probably the most undeveloped part of the supply chain in the cannabis industry is social consumption lounges, even in the states that have passed social consumption. So a social consumption lounge is a place that people can go and actually consume cannabis cannabis. Currently in most states you have to consume cannabis in private. So for example, Florida you buy it at a dispensary, but you need to consume it in private. Certain recreational states do have cannabis lounges where you could actually consume it at a particular location. Um, so that's becoming more and more popular. And obviously those places that are, are distributing kind of in a restaurant style will also be subject to, to certain food laws as well. But lots of different complications when it comes to social consumption lounges. And even the states that have allowed them they really haven't rolled it out very well. So the industry is still trying to figure out like what the best way to do this is.
3: Right, so there's no blueprint for that just yet. It seems like everything else will have to try it out as it goes along, right?
0: Yeah, it exactly. seems like there's a lot of commercial real estate implications here, right? You have retail space, right, that Rick's primarily talking about with dispensaries. But then, as as Dustin talked about, you're also getting into food food space. Restaurant space could be retail space. It could be other space. And then third, you have lab space, right? You're talking about the development of food products. And you have to, obviously, that's probably, I don't know if the FDA regulates or states would regulate the quality and, and cleanliness of lab space. Uh, and then you, I imagine you have growing you and you have distribution. I don't know, Dustin, if distribution's a problem. Uh, I don't know if the industry can use the US Postal Service or they can use private services, but um, as, the, as the business evolves, we're gonna have to deal with that as well. So I don't know if you wanna comment on that because that's another, you know, distribution is the fastest growing part of the industrial market today, but how is that? Uh, how will that be uh, manifested when it comes to the cannabis and marijuana and edible space?
1: Yeah, I mean, right now, you you can't use the postal service for marijuana. Number one, you can't do anything interstate. It has to all be intrastate because it's federally illegal. So you can't ship outside of the state if you're dealing with marijuana. Um, So really, you know, in certain states, they have specific delivery licenses, so transportation licenses that you have. So you may not have a retail license, but you're allowed to transport and deliver marijuana to consumers. Obviously, during the pandemic, delivery became extremely important. And, you know, companies started doubling down on, on how they deliver that that goes for even outside of the cannabis industry. Um, and then in some states, you know, like Florida, that's vertically integrated, not only are you, you required in Florida to grow process and dispense your own product, you're also required to deliver your own product. So that is basically the same licensed company that's cultivating it, is producing it, is dispensing it, is delivering it. So, you know, one of the kind of things I hear a lot about in, in some of these different different states is trying to create like the Amazon model where you have warehouses that could distribute and get to people within a day or so right like I think people there's kind of this philosophical debate going on within the industry you know people are excited to go into dispensaries, so they may not you know ask for delivery but at the end of the day the way people are used to getting their their marijuana is through their drug dealer driving it to their house right so so people are used to delivery i think right now people are kind of excited to go into a marijuana shop but down the road will that excitement continue or will people really be looking for you know just ordering from a distribution center that could deliver it right to their door. Um, I think what we're going to see is a lot of these dispensaries are going to be somewhat commoditized, kind of like what we see with liquor stores, where you know if you want to go buy a bottle of liquor, you're not really going and finding your favorite liquor store. You're usually just finding whatever liquor store is closest to you. And I think in many ways, um, that's what we're going to start seeing from some of these dispensaries. And I think a lot of people are going to be moving towards really a delivery model. Is it is it fair to say that alcohol is the
0: closest uh, comparable, if you will, to the industry regulation? Right there's states that have package stores, right? Still, there are states that uh, don't allow you know sales on Sunday. There are states that limit interstate commerce, uh, or maybe the federal government. You know, is that the best? Or are there other types of industries that have a lot of uh, nuance to to leasing and owning real estate in this in uh, that can be that we can learn from when it comes to the the uh, cannabis space?
2: I'd say alcohol is definitely the closest. Um, I can't. Uh, I can't think of anything else that would be as regulated. Um, I will say another industry that has taken off are um, third-party testing facilities because each one of these. Um, marijuana companies for each crop has to have <laughs> everyone tested and in a certain amount of time. So there's uh, there's a lot of delay right now in the testing process that, uh, yeah, we'll see a lot more testing centers or labs going up throughout the, the country and in, in state. Yeah, and
1: I think, you know, testing labs about- are huge. And... Uh- and then, and then also I'll just add, you know, liquor is probably the closest to cannabis, but really there's no blueprint. And, and as a result, pretty much every state is embroiled in lawsuits. Florida, it was very lit- litigation heavy. Um, there's 22 licenses that have been issued in Florida. Out of those 22, I think like 18 of them were issued through lawsuits. Illinois, I mentioned before, um, they got sued by the people that lost, and then they reversed what they were doing, and then the people that won sued them as well. So now the state doesn't know what they should be doing. And, and really just almost every single state, if you are planning to get involved in the industry and you want to apply for a license, just expect for there to be a tremendous amount of litigation, rules will be challenged, um, statutes will be challenged, constitution will be challenged. There's going to be tremendous challenges, and part of that is because there's really no comparable industry there's no blueprint right now um, alcohol is the closest um, but we're really kind of creating this this new uh, you know enterprise here with cannabis and, and states are really struggling to properly roll it out interesting Interesting. Jackie, Any
3: questions? You know, we have a, a, a ton of questions coming in. Um, I think if we want to start uh, doing, taking questions from the audience, I have about five or six ready to rock right here. It seems like that's going to be a lively conversation if we want to start there. Um, so one that's popped up a couple of times now is, you know, if I wanted to lease my property for this, how would I get clients? How do we find clients? So um, how, how how can people access cannabis businesses that are that are looking to license
0: to them. Um, oh, I know. Actually, you- go ahead, go ahead, director. As the uh, I'll I just say, just, uh, speaking uh, on behalf of you know commercial real estate in general, let's find a good broker who knows your business, right? Who knows how to lease business. Because at the end of the day, you're leasing to a particular use, and someone like Rick and Dustin are very knowledgeable about this particular use. But a good broker should be able to advise you. On strategies to market your property and find the tenants that you want um, in a space. So I'd say that's that's the first one. So Rick, go ahead. And tell want you share some more knowledge.
2: Uh, I was going to say the the good part about um, you know if you're a landlord or if you're representing a uh, a landlord that would like to lease to um, medical or recreational marijuana is one, reach out to your local land <laughs> planning department and understand if it's even possible. And then two, the good part about them being licensed is it's all public and finding, I know in Florida we have the Office of Medical Marijuana Use, um, so you can get contacts for every single one of the licensed dispensaries fairly easily. Now getting in touch with the right person is a little tougher, but um, understanding your local codes, if if you represent a landlord, is probably the best place to start.
3: Um,
1: so yeah, and there questions. there are there are also websites, there's stuff like Canna MLS, I think it's called, you know, there's certain websites that also like list properties and licenses that are for sale. So, um, there's, you know, there are things that are being developed to try to link people up better within the industry.
3: Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, are there any rules and regulations about the signage of cannabis stores? And I guess that's probably a jurisdiction specific, but... Uh,
2: Somewhat. I know at the state level, I was under the impression that you couldn't put marijuana or cannabis in the signage, but either that's being ignored or it changed because in the beginning there wasn't, and now we're seeing a lot more of it. Um, Dustin, you know if the law changed?
1: Yeah, no, no, the law didn't change. No, there's there's very specific laws here in Florida and in most states relating to signage. Um, and oftentimes, like Rick mentioned, you know, can't say anything about cannabis or marijuana you just kind of have like your logo there or you could at least say you know truly the medical marijuana treatment center um but then also even the size of those signs is is regulated in a lot of states and what you could put on there and that that's in large part why when you drive by these locations in florida you don't even recognize that they're there's a cannabis store right next to you. I, I, you know, I have people all the time. They'll be like, "Ah, oh, I didn't know cannabis was legal in Florida." I said, I said it earlier in the presentation, and it's because the the signage and the laws is very restrictive, even on the marketing and advertising, um, especially in medical states. As you get further into like recreational states, some of the marketing is a little bit less restrictive. But you know, that's why you don't see billboards for cannabis companies on the side of the highway, at least not in Florida or in m- most medical states because that's highly regulated even the pretty much all the marketing and stuff has to get approved by um the office of medical marijuana use here in florida so it signage labeling um marketing all of that stuff is highly restrictive in this in this industry
3: this is a question for rick what's the number one tip realtors and businesses should look out for when approaching a cannabis deal
2: um, don't, don't ask for the world, you know, if you treat them like any other hot retailer, um, and, uh, you know, if you try to, uh, to get greedy, then you're going to scare everybody off. I think, uh, that's my main tip. Cause I've lost a lot of good deals that could have worked if they hadn't tried to, extract too much money out of the deal.
3: And another question for you, what is the percentage of breaches versus industrial leases you're seeing for um, growing versus selling cannabis products?
2: I will say you're not seeing many um, industrial leases, mainly because... When when these licenses are set up in the beginning, most of the dispensaries or organizations, they purchased their properties. And then down the road, once they realized some of the the tax issues and not being able to take depreciation and write-off, they realized it was better to lease. So they kind of did a sale lease back, but those were pretty large, specific deals, so you don't really see a lot of the industrial side, at least from my world. <laughs> um, there there may be others out there that are seeing more of it, but mainly retail.
3: Got it. And this is a general question. Um, is odor an issue with co-tenants, and how is that handled?
2: There, right now, especially in Florida, odor is not an issue, because you can't use the product um, publicly. Uh, you can't use it in the store. You can't use it in the parking lot. Um, obviously, can't use it in your car. Um, so odor is not an issue at all. A lot of times, they think that the product itself is going to smell or permeate into other tenants. But um, the way this stuff's packaged for it to, uh, to stay fresh, theres it's never been an issue. Now,
3: the cross the labs yeah, labs and grow sites, because I know in California, particularly in wine country, there is um, an all out war a legal war, and i don 't even think that 's putting it mildly between cult, uh, wine cultivators and uh, cannabis cultivators because of the the smell and, and you know people with water from property, yeah. et cetera, a lot are pretty angry about having weed in their backyard.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the dispensaries will put in air air filtration systems as well as the cultivation centers. And in Florida, you know, it's required to be indoors. So to some extent, it's not as big of an issue. But I will tell you, if you're driving up to a cultivation center, you will start to smell it. Um, for sure so you know the the general cause of action is is a nuisance claim right i mean we all have the right to enjoy our property and if the smell is is overcoming other properties there could be a, a nuisance cause of action so you know there's it's definitely something that, you know, tenants need to be aware of um, and they need to be careful about and try to kind of mitigate some of their odor. And there's been all sorts of, you know, different technologies and stuff that have been developed to kind of help mitigate that odor. And whenever you apply for a marijuana license in any state one of the questions that i've seen every single time is you know what's your odor mitigation plan so these these companies are required to have some sort of odor mitigation plan um but but also what's interesting is even hemp which in florida and in most states is actually allowed to be grown outside hemp is once again it's the cannabis plant and hemp smells just the same as marijuana it looks just the same as marijuana. So I actually had a client in the hemp industry that that's a grower, and they actually had the, the police come to their his property because they thought they were illegally growing marijuana. And, you know, it was actually a pretty good exchange because they ended up calling over like the whole department and we kind of trained them on the difference between marijuana and hemp and we turned it into an educational session. Um, but yeah, I mean, the smell, you, you pull up to some of these hemp farms and it's it's strong. So that's not only an issue on the marijuana side, it's it's also something to be, be aware of, probably even more so on the hemp side because you could actually grow it outside.
3: That makes sense. Um, this is a question for me, but I also think it's a question for Dustin. Uh, what other facets of cannabis will be on the rise given edibles are now taking over kitchens, etc. Um, I always think extractions, which also flows into concentrate. I mean, with edibles, um, you need—you know, Dustin mentioned this earlier—but you need to extract and then infuse. And so, extraction facilities and labs are um, paramount to not just edible products, but also for making cannabis concentrates, which are consumable on their own. Basically, I Anything infused is going to need an extract, uh, extraction process, so you have a few different um, market outputs there. So I, I would focus on those kinds of industrial spaces. But Dustin, I'm curious to see what you've seen play out and, and, and what kind of what kind of increased activity you've seen in which areas.
1: Yeah, I mean, from a products perspective, I think beverages are becoming more and more popular. Um, if if you're going to try to roll out like a beverage brand, you need to be very Careful about what state you're rolling out in. For example, in Florida, they don't allow liquid beverages; it needs to be in powder form. So, to the extent that you have a, uh, you know, a packaged liquid cannabis beverage, you're not going to be able to, to have that here in Florida um but i think what we're also seeing is that that brands are you know the really the top brands are are really kind of building up strong names and and the play you know a lot everyone thinks like i need a cultivation license i need a processing license i need a dispensing license but what a lot of companies are doing is they're building up their brand and you know kind of resonating with with the customers and the patients on a national level and then they'll enter into a licensing deal with a company that does have a dispensing license. So just because you don't have a license in Florida, um, if you're a a well-known brand and you have some sort of proprietary technology, in your formulation, or if you just have good brand recognition, uh, there are opportunities to kind of license your brand and your, your manufacturing to uh, someone in another state. So I think brands are, are, a lot of different brands are starting to emerge, but I agree with you being in the middle of the supply chain from whether it's uh, extraction or, or distribution, I think is a big opportunity. Unfortunately, the farmer always gets squeezed, and I think cultivation um, eventually will just be kind of commoditized, like it does with with most most crops. I, I hate to say that because I work with a, a lot of farmers and a lot of cultivators. Um, unless you could distinguish yourself and and kind of be, uh, you know, the, the the you know the some sort of unique way and and the high quality crop that you're able to produce
3: right and you know this may be dovetails into there's a general question for you do you have any predictions on the cannabis legality and where the ind- industry is headed and i'd like to add you know this is probably way off but interstate commerce how how how, how might that change this
1: yeah, so um, at a federal level, there's a lot of changes going on. Um, there's the States Act, which essentially what the States Act does is it, it defers to the states. It basically says that it's kind of, uh, you know, a, a 10th Amendment kind of uh provision type amendment is, you know, what delegates certain authority to the state. So the States Act basically defers to the states. It's, it's pretty wide. Then you have the Safe Banking Act, which is really more focused just on protecting banks and opening up, up the banking. I think what we're probably going to see over the next couple of years from a federal perspective is um, some changes at a banking level and also a tax level. Um, 280E is a tax provision that makes the effective tax rate extremely high for these cannabis businesses um and then i think you know hopefully five to six years from now we could see something like the states act or or descheduling or rescheduling but i don't think you know in the next couple years people ask me is it going to be legalized in the next couple years i don't think so but i think we'll start seeing steps being taken to at least make it easier for these businesses to do banking and and to get a little bit of relief on on the tax side
3: Got it. And in terms of lease length and flexibility, um, obviously, you know, you mentioned before that, you know, sometimes these businesses getting their license is contingent on also having real estate. And and this process is in flux with many different regulatory. Are, are there any special flexibilities involved? And what what's kind of the typical length of leases that we're seeing here?
2: Well, I can kind of speak to length of leases as far as, you uh... You know, once you get a lease in place with a licensee, um, all the landlords and investors want to see seven to 10 years. And most of the tenants want to see five years with some options. It's kind of like any other retailer. Um, But yeah, I'd say five to 10 are your typical lease terms. And then uh, I have seen some um, almost purchase of options, on buying a property, I know the idea of an option has been around for a while, but uh, be it you know called a uh, non-refundable deposit, it's kind of the same way to to hold a property in place while somebody works on there, you know, and getting their license.
3: Got it. Okay, I think that's all we have for audience questions unless there are any last minute ones coming in. So i I think I'll turn it over to you, Dan.
0: Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. So first of all, I'm going to say thank you to our panelists. You guys are fantastic. You're experts in your field. Um, I know as a commercial real estate professional services company, our job is to be advisors and to bring together experts on topics. You know, we're not, we don't uh, we don't design businesses and tell them what to do, but we bring together the people they need to talk to. So Dustin, thank you. Rick, thank you. And Jackie, your expertise is, is invaluable in this discussion. Um, and our job is to be the Sherpa, so to speak, to guide, to guide our Clients to understanding exactly um, the path that they can take, either to lease a space uh, or to be the lessee of a space. So I appreciate that very much. Um, this is our uh, this is the end of our CBC chatter. I want to uh, ask everybody uh, if you'd like to, you can get into, you can submit additional questions um, to CBC. At curicweiss.com or Matt Lapani at CB Home Office, we'll show you those email addresses in one second. Uh, you can obviously inquire through us to any of our ask questions of our panelists. We're here to help you, and we're always uh, we're, we're thinking about what's going to be the next topic. I mean, at the end of the day, super interesting topic, lots of nuance to the cannabis space. At the same time. Uh, it intersects with commercial real estate and it has some of the same issues of commercial real estate. What are permitted uses? What lenders are allowed? Uh, zoning issues and so forth. So there's an interesting intersection the business is gonna evolve. There'll be many larger industries, uh, larger players in the space are are coming into, uh, you know, food and beverage companies and so forth, and laws will change. So best to have a good advisor on your side. So I wanna thank everybody for your participation today. Thank you to the audience for the questions and uh, showing up with an interesting discussion. And join us next quarter for CBC Chatter on another topic that's uh, of interest to players in the commercial real estate industry. Thanks very much and have a great afternoon.